part of the issue for Canadians when they come down to the U.S. is they consider the systems to be very similar because, after all, we have grown up watching American television. We've watched American movies. We've played American sports teams. We think that our countries are, are relatively homogenous. They're not. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. This is episode six, and today we are talking about Canadians in America. As usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm pretty good tonight. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing okay. We're uh, we're making it. We're we're doing homeschool, and no one has flunked yet, so I feel like we're succeeding. That's that's pretty good. As I mean, and as long as you haven't flunked yet, that's that's I think an accomplishment right there. Well, yeah. Fortunately, no one has told me that they're grading me. So, <laughs> you know, as long as you're not on the ground, passed out, exhausted, just sick and tired of it, that's I think I think you passed. Thank you. That's very <laughs> that's very kind of you to say that. It's unnecessary for you to say that in such a generous way, but it's very kind. I'm I'm actually kind of surprised. I think um, if you had asked me, say, a month and a half ago, if homeschooling our kids just only speaking, you know, for us, not for anybody else, but if homeschooling our kids would have been a good idea or a bad idea, I would have said, that's probably not a good idea, but it has been good. And I've been, I've been very surprised by how adaptable the kids have been to this kind of new format that's been forced on everybody. So that's been nice. Good, good. Yeah. It's definitely a big change for everyone right now. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully there's uh, some kind of glimmers of light at the end of the tunnel, but you never know. We will all find out soon enough. Well, I thought that for a topic like Canadians in America, it would be most appropriate to speak with a Canadian in America. And so that is why we're joined today also by Dave Smitten. Dave, how are you, man? I'm good, Brent. How are you? I'm doing well. You are, without question, one of my favorite Canadians. I don't know if I've ever told you that before. You Let's, don't know many Canadians, do you? Yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm on a small list. <laughs> That's right. You made the short list, but you're That's on the right. list anyways. Well, tell us, uh, I mean, I, I know you well, but the people in uh, Rachel, I don't know if they know you well. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, who you are, what you do. Sure. So uh, as you've said, I'm a, I'm a Canadian living in America. I am a lawyer by background. I practice law up in Canada, up in Alberta, Canada specifically for about 17 years. I came down to the U.S. Uh, in around 2015 and wrote the bar exam down here, which is a completely different story that we'll talk about when you completely have lost the will to live because it's a bit trying. Uh, wrote the bar exam down here in 2016, became admitted to the bar in Arizona in 2016. So I am a dual licensed lawyer, licensed to practice law in Arizona and in Alberta, Canada. I am a principal and a partner in a company called Evolve Cross-Border Partners, we are a company that deals specifically with Canadians in the U.S. and Americans in Canada and individuals who have business and personal interests in both countries. I'm delighted to be here for your topic today. I think it's, it's timely and it's an appropriate topic for, for us to talk. Yeah, that's great. Well, I certainly appreciate that pitch for the topic and certainly appreciate that you've joined us. You know, I've known you, uh, I've known you for a while. I think you're 
a very bright and capable lawyer. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from you and get some, uh, get some feedback from you on what you think about the topics that we've proposed here. So I had thought, if this is still acceptable to everybody here on the call, that we would cover, number one, the residency rules. I guess focusing more on the U.S. residency rules than the Canadian residency rules, since we're talking about Canadians coming here and not the outbound Americans going to Canada. But uh, the, the residency rules, both from an income tax and transfer tax perspective, since those seem to be not perfectly well understood, I'd say broadly in the U.S., and they they really frame the issues in my mind. And then after we talk about that, maybe talk about the income taxation of residents of the U.S. and maybe some things that Canadians who are in the U.S. who either have property down here or might be caught up in the residency rules can do or ought to be doing to make life a little easier for themselves. And then talk about the transfer tax rules. I, what I really mean is the estate tax rules for, for residents and non-residents in the U.S. So again, thinking about Canadians who are in the U.S. owning property and then dying maybe cover how those those rules work and what th people ought to be thinking about. And then finally, I thought we could wrap it up by talking about revocable trusts in the U.S. in relation to Canadian residents, uh, since revocable trusts are pretty uh, time-tested and frequent vehicle used in the U.S. for estate planning, and perhaps is good and perhaps not good for Canadians. So I thought maybe we would talk about that. Does that make sense to you guys? Sounds like a plan. Absolutely. Let's dive in. All right, let's do it. Let's let's talk about the residency rules. And, and Rachel, I know you've been looking at those, so maybe you're the right person to jump in on that. Yeah. Well, it makes sense to start off with the residency rules. Like you said, Brent, it's kind of the, you know, the, the bit of the background that we need to understand kind of these next topics. So first, just looking at the income tax residency rules. And again, like you said, Brent, earlier, this is for Canadians coming into the U.S., so the main test that we look at for income tax purposes is the substantial presence test. And what the IRS looks at is they are going to consider a Canadian a U.S. resident for tax purposes if they meet the substantial presence test for the calendar year. And kind of what that looks like, the IRS is going to count the number of days that someone is in the U.S. And basically, if you're going to be in the U.S. more than 183 days in a three-year period, then they're going to consider you to be a resident of the U.S. And now to kind of calculate this 183-day rule in this three-day period, they kind of look at an averaging. Um, so they're going to average um, all of the days in the current year. They're going to look at a third of the days in a previous year. And then they're going to look at one-sixth of the days in the second previous year. So if you kind of run the math, and I, I know we're attorneys, so we really don't like to run the math, but if we do, and you have an individual who's in the U.S. for more than 122 days for three consecutive years, then they're going to meet the substantial presence test. So when you think about that, I mean, really, if you have a Canadian coming down to the U.S., spending more than three or four months in the U.S., they are going to meet the substantial presence test, and they're going to trip this residency rule. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There are two get out of jail free cards if a Canadian meets the substantial presence test. The first get out of jail free card is the closer connection exception. And so to get this exception, the individual has to file a form 8840 and they have to inform the IRS that they have closer connections with Canada than with the US. And so then if 
the closer connection exception is made, then the U.S. will treat the Canadian as a non-resident alien instead of a U.S. resident. Now, if we can't do the closer connection exception, the other get-out-of-jail-free card would be to invoke the income tax treaty rules. And basically, those rules have a set of priorities. And kind of when you run through them, if you fit in one of those priorities, then you can avoid being considered a U.S. resident. So that list, first, you're going to look at the highest priority, which is do you have a permanent resident available to you? So if you've got you know, a house in the U.S., if you don't meet that one, then we're going to go down to the second priority, which is where's your center of vital interest? And I know everyone completely understands what their center of vital interest is. I mean, doesn't everyone use that phrase? Naturally, yeah. Uh, of course. Uh, but for those who don't use your center of vital interest on a day-to-day -day basis, basically that's kind of like the closer connection test. Then we're going to go down to the third priority which is where is your habitual abode? Uh, so basically, when do you kind of, where do you routinely spend your time? Where do you habitually spend your time? And if we can't really go anywhere off that, then we're going down to the last one, which is basically going to be based off your citizenship. So you're going to kind of run through those rules and then we're going to see whether or not you can fit in any of those rules to avoid being considered a resident. Now, it is important to note, though, that if you're going to try and invoke these income tax treaty rules, you do have to file a timely tax return, and you do have to file a Form 8833 with the return um, in order to kind of invoke those rules. So it is a bit more of an onerous process, but, you know, if you can kind of avoid being determined a U.S. resident for income tax purposes, that little bit of work can go a long ways. Uh, it's an interesting situation because the, the IRS takes the position that you have to timely file an income tax return and, and then attach to the income tax return, which by definition then would also be timely with the return, uh, this form 8833. But the form 8833 is just to tell the IRS that you are taking a treaty position. There's nothing in the treaty that says the terms of this treaty only apply if you comply with weird ministerial requirements of the relative revenue agency. And notwithstanding that, the IRS takes a position that you just don't get to claim the treaty unless you file your return. I think it's kind of a, it's sort of a BS position, but that's, that's the IRS position anyway. So if you're being cautious, you got to make sure you get those returns filed on time. If you miss the deadline, let's say, you know, you didn't file for closer connection and then you need to file and make a treaty claim, but you haven't filed a timely return, then I think you just file a late one and you attach the form. You you probably have to pay a penalty, but you attach the 8833 and you just claim the treaty tiebreaker rules as a bailout for residency. And then you just hope that the IRS accepts it. Again, I don't think there's like a real actual legal basis for them to not allow you to use the treaty just because you didn't file a piece of paper. Technically, that's the position they take. The other thing you want to bear in mind too, Brent, is when you want to claim your treaty relief and you have to file the full U.S. tax return, you actually have to file all the informational forms with the tax return. So in the event that you want to claim the relief, you have to file your, your 1040 tax return, but you also have to file your foreign bank account reporting, your FinCEN report. And if you own any interest in Canadian corporations or any foreign corporations, you're going to have to file the form in relation to that. So it actually can become pretty onerous in the event that you've had to take it all the way to the point that you're having to make a claim for treaty relief, as opposed to simply going ahead and filing the closer connection form on time, which gets you away from all of those onerous requirements. Yeah, that's a great point.
So we've just talked about the income tax residency rules. Now we're going to look at the transfer tax residency rules. This one is a lot more simpler. There's a lot less math, luckily for us lawyers. Um, so the transfer tax rules, we're going to look at the domicile test. And what this test really looks at is where you're domiciled, that's where you're going to be a resident at. So it's kind of a facts and circumstances, and there's two parts to this test. The first part is that you must physically move to the US. That's an objective test. We got to see whether or not you've moved your domiciled over to the US. The second part of the test is a bit more subjective, and that's whether or not you have the intent to remain in the US permanently. So uh, the IRS is going to look at kind of your social structure, where's your family, where's your friends, um, where do you do business, where do you vote, where's your driver's license in, where do you pay taxes, all of that kind of stuff to really kind of see where your actual domicile is. And really the, I mean, from my perspective, I don't, Dave, I don't know if you see it differently or not, but from my perspective, that, dom that second piece of the domicile test, the subjective piece of the domicile test is basically a closer connection test. Like the analysis is pretty similar. You're making the argument that you couldn't have meant to stay in the U.S. permanently because you had a closer connection with a foreign country and you got to run through all these kind of factors that Rachel is mentioning to figure out whether you subjectively meant it or not. Yeah, part, part of the issue is what are the things you're doing to show really where you intend to live? Like for example, uh, the state of Nevada actually has a form where you can swear a statutory declaration saying, I am domiciled in Nevada. If you go and undertake that step, that's a pretty good indication of where you intend to reside and where you intend to be domiciled. So things like that, or if you do a will, for example, normally in the, in the recital of your will, you're saying, I, John Smith of wherever you happen to be, hereby make this my last will and testament. And again, you're attesting as to where you intend to be domiciled or where you consider yourself to be resident and domiciled. So they will start to take a look at, at factors like that and coming to a determination of domicile as opposed to simply residence, which is that, as you've said, more objective test of, uh, I, I have a partner who actually describes it very well. He says, if I were to make a picture window out of a department store and put all the pieces of your life in there and someone came and looked at the picture window, where would they think you lived? And it's an assembly of all of that aggregate of material where everyone will look at it and say, I really think this person resides in this particular place. Yeah, that's right. So you, if you have, say, a Canadian coming down to the U.S. and they don't want to be a U.S. resident for transfer tax purposes, like estate tax purposes, then on all of their official forms, they do not want to say that they live in the United States. They want to say that their residence is in Canada because when you officially say it, then subjectively, or you're proving that subjectively you meant to be in the United States because you're saying it in, a, in an official capacity. It's a strong factor. It's, it's a difficult factor to overcome, I think. Oh, incredibly so. And I, because Canada is different in terms of Canada doesn't have an estate tax. So if you walk in and you walk into the, the circumstance where someone's going to consider you to be domiciled in the U.S. upon your death, you could be walking into an additional tax to which you shouldn't have any exposure. Right. 
There's one other area I guess we ought to mention in terms of like residency and what could possibly cause residency either for income tax purposes or for transfer tax purposes. And that is if a Canadian actually acquires a green card in the U.S., then the U.S. will say you're a resident. Like we don't care if you got the green card and you're not living in the U.S. and you're kind of violating your visa, but you haven't, you know, hasn't been like revoked yet. Once you have it and while you have it, you're treated as a resident and there's no getting out of it. It doesn't matter. You could file all the closer connection claims that you want. You could try to make as many treaty tiebreaker claims as you want. But if you have the green card, we say, nope, you are a resident, period. You could move back to Canada and you still would have to file a, Can- a U.S. income tax return. So you're, you're absolutely right. The green card is a significant determining factor of U.S. residency. It doesn't mean you are a non-resident of other countries, but it certainly means you are a resident of the United States for those purposes. Yeah, right. It's a bit of a uh, surprise. You know, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> now it's hard to leave. There's there's a, a couple of things that maybe we should talk about then in terms of residency and maybe answering the question that even talking about residency poses, which is who cares or so what? And the so what, at least from an income tax perspective, is that once someone is a resident in the United States, they are subject to paying tax in the United States on their worldwide income. And if someone, say, was a resident of both Canada and the United States, well, both countries have a similar rule. And so you're paying tax on your worldwide income in both countries, trying to take offsetting tax credits so that you don't get double tax. But you got to claim those credits. You don't just get them automatically. And so you're filing tax returns in both countries, potentially, if you're a resident in both countries, and trying to hope that the math works out so that you're just paying essentially one level of tax. But once you become a resident of the U.S., you're subject to worldwide income tax in the U.S. at the U.S. rates. In addition to that, uh, Dave, you mentioned this, which was exactly on point. Once you're a resident in the United States, even if you're trying to claim your way out of it in some fashion, like through the treaty, you're subject to a couple of really nasty rules that relate to your interests in, in a foreign country, either in an account or in companies or in other financial instruments. So there are rules, they're called in the US, they're called anti-deferral rules, and they effectively say if you have an interest in a foreign corporation, we will tax you in a disadvantageous way. Either we'll tax you at ordinary income tax rates right now, every year, regardless of whether you got any money, or we'll tax you when you get your money, but at ordinary income tax rates, and then we'll charge you interest on top of that so that it dissuades residents of the US from investing on an investment basis abroad. And then there are rule, anti-deferral rules that apply to interests in certain foreign trusts where A similar thing happens where if you don't get all the income out now, you're going to get charged an interest rate when you get the interest out of the trust, trying to dissuade people from, say, taking their money, putting it into a Canadian trust and not paying U.S. tax, letting letting that investment accumulate in Canada and not paying U.S. tax on the investments in the trust every year. And so they're trying to dissuade people from doing that. So those anti-deferral rules can apply to, to trust once you become a U.S. resident. And then there are really onerous reporting rules where you have to basically report in fairly duplicative fashion all of your foreign accounts, all of your foreign financial interests, all of your interests in foreign corporations, all your interests in foreign partnerships, all of your interests in foreign trusts. And you could be reporting the same transactions on multiple forms. We do not care. 
the, the U.S. does not care that it's onerous. The U.S. does not care that it takes a lot of money to pay accountants to put these things together. We just don't care. Once you're a resident, we're trying to dissuade you from putting money that should be in the U.S. in a foreign country. It, it actually can go a little bit further than that in terms of we don't care. They actually do care in the sense that there are very significant penalties for making errors on those forms or not filing those forms. You could end up forfeiting interests in tr- essentially economic interests and in trusts because you didn't tell the U.S. that you had the interest in the trust. That's right. Yeah. So not only do we make you go through all the hoops, if you don't jump through the hoops correctly, we then hit you with a really big stick. You got it. It's, it's, which has always, it's baffled me, but I'm, I don't think I'm the first person to be baffled by it in that I think where the stick comes from are rules meant to combat tax cheats and tax evaders who want to park money in foreign jurisdictions that don't have any income taxes, Canada not being one of them, uh, but park park money in foreign jurisdictions that don't have income taxes and then not pay your income tax in the US. So they come up with these really, really penalizing rules to dissuade Americans from doing that. It's just then when you start applying it, say, to a Canadian who comes down to the US and they maintain foreign interests in Canada, but they become a US resident, even though they are not tax cheats and their money is not in a low tax, no tax jurisdiction, we still apply the rules the same way. (laughs) It does boggle the mind at times. Part of the issue for Canadians when they come down to the U.S. is they consider the systems to be very similar because after all, we have grown up watching American television. We've watched American movies. We've played American sports teams. We think that our countries are are relatively homogenous. They're not. Canada has a, a tax system that can look substantially different from the U.S. tax system. And as a result of that, it's very easy to make the error. It's very easy not deliberately to make the mistake, but simply to make the mistake because you made the wrong assumption. And time and time again, that's something that that we see is the underreporting. Typically, it's just simple ignorance. I didn't know I had to report this. We dealt with a Canadian who came down to the U.S. on a non-immigrant visa under the, the former NAFTA, now the uh, USMCA, who continued to file Canadian tax returns, did not file any U.S. returns, because after all, the trade nation status under NAFTA is a non-immigrant visa. I'm not immigrating to the United States. I'm still a resident of Canada. Well, the problem is substantial presence, as Rachel was saying. He tripped it. And at the end of the day, he had an obligation to file the U.S. return. Interestingly, he didn't have the obligation to file the Canadian return if he would have structured an exit from Canada appropriately. But we all consider, I mean, we have the world's longest undefended border and traffic back and forth across the U.S.-Canadian border uh, until very recently was very easy. And the problem is people would generally fall unwittingly into a false sense of how homogenous the two cultures and the two countries are. And they simply aren't. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I've had quite a few Canadian clients tell me things like, well, I, we always, we, we pay all of our taxes in Canada. We pay all of our taxes from the U.S. and Canada. Say, we don't care. The U.S. does not care. <laughs> we're, we're, we're sort of like, we'll give you a participation sticker for having paid your tax in Canada, but that doesn't get you off the hook from having to play the game down here. Absolutely not. The income tax side of things, I think to me, it raises two really common issues for Canadians, at least that I see. Uh, One is we were talking about the closer connection and it's such a good way out of these issues. And so most Canadians 
who are well advised every year religiously, number one, count the number of days that they're in the US uh, for all the reasons that Rachel was talking about. And number two, they file their form 8840 to claim a closer connection with Canada so that they're always in the eyes of the US, a Canadian resident for tax purposes, and they're not going to be a US resident for tax purposes. It's easy to do. You don't have to file a separate tax return. You just file that return, make the disclosure and claim that benefit. And I think it's where Canadians come down here to your point, Dave, and they're not well advised and they don't even know that they should be doing it, that, that it falls through the cracks. It's so easy to do that if you knew it, you would absolutely do it unless you were like in a coma. But if you don't even know, then there's no way you would do it. And so those are the people, it's the unadvised who really trip up on that rule. But it's super easy to do. And, and every Canadian who doesn't want to be a resident down here definitely ought to do it. The second thing I see really commonly is, say, a Canadian individual who either buys a second home in the States or buys a rental property in the States. And in either case, starts renting it out, you know, Airbnb, whatever. And what the U.S. rules say are technically the U.S. renter has to withhold and pay a 30% tax on the gross amount of rent that they're paying to the Canadian. Almost no one does this. It's, I think it's a huge area of non-compliance that if the, if the IRS was really intent on squeezing money out of people, like they'd go after this. But it's very common that that doesn't happen. But let's assume everybody is doing everything the right way, just for hypothetical purposes here. That means the renter will withhold a 30% tax on the gross amount of the rent, pay that to the government, and the Canadian landlord never sees the money. And the Canadian landlord can't get it back, and they cannot take any deductions against expenses that they're incurring on the rental property. So it's kind of a double whammy. You only get 70% of your rents and you can't deduct any of your costs. So there is a way around this rule. It's both in the Internal Revenue Code and it's in the tax treaty. And it is, it's an election to treat, basically to treat renting the property, not as rental income, but as business income that's located in the US and business income is treated differently. It's called effectively connected income, ECI income. And you get to report ECI income on a net basis, meaning you get to take deductions against it. You have to file a tax return, but you get to say, report the rental income on your schedule E and you get to put in your depreciation deductions and you get to take your deductions for fixing the water heater, et cetera. And so you only get, if you're a Canadian and you're in the US, you only get that privilege if you make that claim. And the way that you make that claim is you have to provide a specific form basically to your renter. It's a WAECI form. And that tells the US renter, you do not need to withhold your 30%. And then therefore they're off the hook. They're technically not no longer liable for withholding that 30%. I just rarely see it happen. I don't know if, Dave, I don't know if your experience has been any different than mine. I, I see the sophisticated property owner getting that done. Yeah. I see the average Canadian who came down to Florida or Arizona or California and bought a property back in 2008 or 9 or 10 when the dollar was very high and we had a negligible currency exchange who then gets a little opportunistic and saying, well, I'm not going to be down here all of the time. I may as well make some income when I'm not in my property. You're right, Brent. That person very rarely actually does that step. And as you've said, the interesting part about it is the owner of the property, the foreign owner of the property is out the 30%. But more substantially, 
the renter it actually becomes the withholding agent. They're the person responsible to give the money to the IRS. So if the IRS is going to start squeezing, looking for those extra dollars, they're going to be going and squeezing the US-based renter. And isn't it an interesting switch in the power balance between tenant and, and landlord that the tenant is then obligated to hold back a portion of the rent, contrary to what the landlord may want? Uh, it, it presents a rather interesting conundrum in terms of what that power balance normally people expect it to be, where the tenant simply pays the rent to the landlord, and this is all the landlord's problem, because that, that really is what the tenant's impression of these things are. I pay my rent, and my landlord you know, keeps the property in good condition and fixes anything that goes wrong, and I'm simply a tenant. I, I have a responsibility to pay my rent, and that's about it. Not when you're renting from the foreign, land, uh, the foreign landowner. Yeah, and, and how many standard realtor association lease agreements say, <laughs> renter, you only have to pay 70% of the rental rate that's in this lease agreement. You can pay the rest of the government we'll just we'll just credit it right we'll just take the credit sure i can imagine that being the standard form <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm certain <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right it's it's a weird kind of flipped upside down world uh, when it comes to say in this case a canadian landlord and then a u.s tenant so let's assume then that you have a, a canadian resident and they own property in the u.s and then they die uh, now what happens now what happens in terms of their exposure yeah yeah uh yeah, yeah. Once you own property in the United States, you become exposed to estate tax. And and estate tax for a foreign owner or foreign resident looks a lot different than the estate tax that U.S. persons have become accustomed to with exemptions, very generous exemptions at this point in time and, and that sort of thing. The, uh, the Canadian owner of the property under the domestic internal revenue code has a very small exemption in relation to the estate tax, the exemption $60,000. So if the property is worth more than $60,000 and you simply rely upon the internal revenue code, you are going to pay estate tax at a rate of about 40% on the difference between the value of that property and your $60,000 exemption. Yeah, and and compare, like if we're doing a little compare and contrast then, if, if that Canadian was a US resident for estate tax purposes, so they did this like, domicile thing that Rachel was talking yep. about, their exemption right now would be 11.58 million. It's this, it's a massive cliff, massive cliff. And, you know, even though the U.S. estate tax exemption has gone up pretty precipitously in the last, say, 10 years, and even in the last five years, it's kind of substantially, nobody has ever talked about moving that $60,000 number. No, no. Like, these people do not vote. They're not, <laughs> they are not constituents, okay? They're not, they're not. Wait, wait, wait. Like, this is representation or taxation without representation. Wait a minute. It, <laughs> yeah, that applies to all of us, but it doesn't apply to all of them. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there is, there is some relief though, I guess, because the, the, there treaty, is. the treaty helps out a little. It does. The, the, under the tax treaty, under the Canada-US tax treaty, you actually have the option instead of proceeding in that fashion. And just claiming the the exemption available under the domestic code, you can actually file an estate tax return and claim some treaty relief. And what the treaty relief generally gives you is some portion of that very generous eleven point five eight million dollar exemption. Essentially, the the estate tax the estate return that you'll be filing requires you to disclose what property you have in the United States. That becomes I'm sorry, Rachel. Here comes the math again. That becomes the numerator in the equation. The denominator in the equation is all of the property that you own everywhere in the world. 
And that fraction or that ratio of U.S. CITES property to your worldwide property is multiplied by the exemption amount, the $11.58 million, and that resulting product represents the exemption that you can claim should you take the step of actually filing the estate tax return and claiming that exemption. So you can get yourself a rather significant bump relative to the meager $60,000 that has been around for probably the last 25 years. And I guess the, the logic behind that is, in practice, it's supposed to mean that if someone has less than uh, or equal or less than the U.S. estate tax exemption amount, they're supposed, a Canadian that is, they're supposed to get their proportionate share of that $11.58 million to cover them in the United States. Exactly. There's a there's a there is a there is a weird mathematical quirk to it, and I won't bore you guys to death with all the numbers necessarily, but maybe just believe me when I say it that because this numerator and denominator takes into account someone's worldwide estate, if a Canadian has a worldwide estate that is more than the exemption amount, depending on the mix of like how much is in the U.S. and then how much is outside the U.S., the fraction that you get or the product that you get is not actually enough of the U.S. credit to cover all of the U.S. property. So Correct. really, so for like, you know, ultra high net worth Canadians who are acquiring property in the U.S., they or their advisors, more likely the advisors, but somebody actually has to sit down and kind of run those numbers to see, okay, where are we? Are we covered? If we're not, do we need to do some adjustments on, on where we own property or get some get rid of some property? Just because there's a strange little mathematical quirk. I don't know that it was intended to be there, but I think what's happened is the, this could be totally arithmetically incorrect, but I'll just say it anyways. I think what's happened is the exemptions have changed so much since they last amended the tax treaty that the math doesn't work quite the same as it used to. Yeah, the, the exemption doubled in 2017. I mean, it doubled. Yeah. And the tax treaty, it, it's, it's a tax treaty that's been around since, I believe, 1980. It's been amended five times. Uh, it is much easier. We're on the fifth protocol of the tax treaty. It's much easier to amend your domestic tax code than it is to go back to another country and negotiate a change to a treaty. And that happens very infrequently, relatively frequently, as we saw in 2017 with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in the U.S. The U.S. code can be amended very quickly. The Canadian code is actually, the Canadian Tax Act is amended even faster because it works off of a different parliamentary system where the party that has the majority in the House of Commons also has the prime minister. So notionally, when the government with, with a majority government wants to pass legislation, it passes on a simple majority typically. And there's a Senate that oversees these things like in, like in the US, it's a little bit different in Canada. But at the end of the day, legislation doesn't tend to get hung up in Canada the same way that it gets hung up in the US. So you'll see these types of things where they're changing the domestic codes far more frequently than they're actually changing the international treaties. Yeah, that's a great point. It's actually almost a minor miracle that we have a treaty with Canada that has been amended five times, five times. I mean, five times, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very robust treaty. It's actually, to, to my mind or to my eye, it's very unlike a lot of the treaties that in, uh, income tax treaties that the U.S. has with other countries. Uh, the U.S. tends to work off of a model treaty and the Canadian treaty, it does work off the model treaty, but they've added so much onto it 
that's not in the model treaty. It's almost a, it's almost a whole different document now for good or ill. I mean, it, yeah. in this instance, it's usually for good because you get this little prorated estate tax credit for Canadians who own property in the U.S. I think it's just a recognition of the fact that the countries are so economically intertwined that we know we're going to have interactions on a daily basis and there are going to be tax implications to all of those different interactions. Mm-hmm. So there's you, you mentioned one thing and that was, uh, Dave, you were talking about filing a tax return, like filing an estate tax return. Yeah. So let, let's maybe flip that on its head. What if Canadian resident owns property in the US, they die, no one files a US estate tax return, then what? <laughs> I don't think they're going to like the consequence of it. Uh, <laughs> first of all, your exposure for the estate tax is full. You have a $60,000 exemption available. You can't seek treaty relief if you don't file the U.S. tax return. So that's out the window. So you have an obligation in relation to the tax that's associated with that property. But more substantially, if you don't file the U.S. tax return, when the beneficiaries of your estate take title to the property, the basis in that property will be reduced to zero. At the end of the day, you're not only taking the penalty yourself, or your estate, pardon me, is taking the penalty by not filing the return but you're also passing the next generation of problem onto your beneficiaries because when they go to sell that property, they don't get the benefit of having basis in that property so that we calculate the gain when they sell it. Their basis is wiped out. They're exposed to tax on the entire amount of the sale price. And it's really double exposure, right? Because they're it is. They're, subject, they're basically subject to a state tax on everything other than the 60 grand. And then they're subject to capital gains on the entire amount of the gain. Correct. So don't do that. That's the moral of this. <laughs> don't, don't do that. File, file your estate tax return or have somebody file the estate tax return, claim the proper relief. Generally speaking, as you've said, Brent, unless you're dealing with someone whose wealth vastly exceeds the estate tax exemption, you generally are going to not be exposed to U.S. estate tax on that property. Okay, thanks. In my mind, that's a very frequent thing that falls through the cracks. I've heard from a lot of Canadians who talk to me about somebody who's passed away, maybe a spouse or or otherwise, and they own property in the U.S. And nobody's even thinking about filing an estate tax return because they've heard somewhere or they've read somewhere, oh no, we get this proportionate credit under the treaty without understanding the next step, which is you got to claim the credit on an estate tax return that's timely filed. Well, and again, the, the way that we deal with property on death is different in Canada. In Canada, when you pass away, you're deemed to have disposed of your property. And really what you're exposed to is capital gains tax. And that capital gains, gains tax is normally paid by the estate. It is not something similar to the estate tax, which has nothing to do with capital gains. The estate tax has to do with the fair market value of the property. And then what you have to do is stagger on an exemption in order to reduce or eliminate your requirement to pay tax on that, on the passing of that property. In Canada, you would be exposed to the tax, but it's a far lesser tax because really what we're talking about is just the delta between what you paid for the property, your basis in it with improvements and and other add-ons, and the fair market value of the property when you pass away. It's a completely different calculation. Right. All right. So the last thing I thought maybe we could talk about unless uh, either of you have more comments about this transfer tax stuff, is the use of, or maybe the wisdom or, or foolishness, as it may be, of using revocable trusts as estate planning vehicles for Canadians who, who are not U.S. residents. 
So similar situation, you got a Canadian resident, they own property in the US, they want to do some estate planning in the US because now they have property down here. And the go-to instrument in the US is a revocable trust. But what does that mean for a Canadian? Because I don't think we can assume that it works perfectly for a Canadian the same way it works for an American. No, no, you can't. Canada has very different treatments of trusts. Down in the U.S., as many people are going to know, trusts, generally speaking, if it's grantor trust, simply is treated like you own the property personally. Any income gets picked up on your personal tax return. It really doesn't have a lot of formal requirements in relation to it. There isn't a lot of separation between the trustee and the beneficiary and all of those sorts of things. It's it's a relatively informal vehicle in terms of its tax treatment. In Canada, a trust is considered to be a separate person. So at the end of the day, in Canada, trusts have an independent filing requirement. So because they're considered to be separate people, they have a separate tax return that gets filed. It's a T3 tax return in Canada. A personal return is a T1. So it's a separate tax return that is filed. But more substantially, when you sell property or when a trust sells property, for example, the trust is the taxpayer. So any tax that is paid by the trust doesn't necessarily get picked up by the individual. So in in the circumstance, if you were to drop a piece of property into a revocable trust in the U.S. as a Canadian, and that property is sold at some point in time by the trust, in the U.S. as a revocable trust, it's it's a nullity. There's no issue. It's a disregarded entity. In Canada, however, the trust is a separate taxpayer. So any tax that you pay in the U.S. as an individual upon the sale of that property, because it is disregarded, you can't pick that up as a tax credit in Canada because it wasn't the trust that paid the tax. So you get a mismatch in between those two taxes and you effectively will be double taxed. Canada will actually tax the trust as a separate entity. Oh, and then by the way, just for added measure, you have to pay any uh, capital gain tax on the currency exchange in Canada as well. So not only do you not to get, get to pick up the foreign tax credit for what you've paid in the U.S. on the sale of the property, but then you will get the full tax in Canada on the capital gain, including the currency gain. Yeah, that's a, that's a frightening prospect, I would say. Trusts just aren't used in Canada as frequently as they are in the U.S. In the U.S., they're very common. As you've said, they really are the go-to for estate planning just to go and use a a revocable trust. In Canada, trusts are generally used for very specific purposes simply because they have an independent taxpayer quality to them. Got it. Am I remembering right also that the Canadian trust rules basically have these anti-dynastic trust provisions that would prevent the trust from holding property long-term without paying any tax on it. Yeah, it's very common in the U.S. as you go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. It changes from state to state. The general rule, and any, any lawyers that are listening to this are going to shudder back to their, uh, their first-year property law class, the rule against perpetuities. Uh, we don't like it when people tie up property forever and ever amen, so we're going to put a clock. It's very common in the U.S. as you go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction where you see significant relaxations of the rule against perpetuities. In fact, you have some jurisdictions that essentially are ignoring the rule against perpetuities and they'll let you hold property inside of a trust almost indefinitely. In Canada, all trusts, with the exception of a couple of trusts that are available when you turn age 65, all trusts undergo a deemed disposition of the property at 21 years. 
So the trusts will undergo a taxable transaction. You don't actually have to sell the property. It's a deemed sale of the property. But every 21 years, the property is deemed to have sold its property, everything that it owns, and you realize the capital gain. So at the end of the day, you know you're going to have that tax trigger come up every 21 years again. Yeah, and that, that's a perfect illustration, I think, to me of this concept you were talking about, Dave, where we, we view the two countries as if they're the same. And we view the two countries as if the rules must be the same in both places, but especially on the trust side of things, they're almost opposites. You know, the trust rules in the U.S. are really flexible. They let you do lots of things. They don't, you know, we ignore the trust. If it's a revocable trust, we just say, we'll ignore it as if it doesn't exist for tax purposes. Totally opposite in Canada. It is. So it, come, so it becomes a mismatch when Canadians come down, they say hire a U.S. estate planning lawyer who's not familiar with the Canadian rules or they don't consult with the Canadian advisor. And then, of course, they recommend out of, out of uh, good faith that the Canadian do a revocable trust down here. And nobody knows that doing the revocable trust was actually a really bad tax move in Canada because they didn't ask the right question of the right person. That's correct. That's where you come in, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I, That's where we try to come in at, at certain times. You're absolutely right. I, I'm trying to figure out exactly what the fraction is of people that will come to us before they undertake the transactions versus the situation where we're trying to remedy a bad transaction. And sometimes those those remedies, I mean, I, I think everybody can recognize it, generally costs more to fix the problem than to have done it right in the first place. Yeah. And it just, it takes a little bit of insight. It just takes a little bit of knowledge in terms of, you don't necessarily need to know how to solve the issue, but you need to know enough to identify that there is an issue and figure out who you need to call and who you need to have a conversation with in order just to make sure that you've addressed it. Right. Yeah. Too true. Too true. Well, we made it to the end, to the end of my list. Was there anything else you guys thought we ought to be talking about? Or any parting thoughts? I'm here. I don't have it. None. 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 I, I think you've. I think you've covered it very thoroughly, Brett. <laughs> I, I, I have some interest in, in hearing about uh, your homeschooling uh, process. I understand you and Rachel were talking about that before I came on. And uh, I, I don't know if you've had the same experience that my wife and I have. Um, my, my kids have actually gone to my wife and asked if they can be transferred out of my class and uh, go, go somewhere else. I'm not, I'm not sure <laughs> what to make of that, but uh, it's an well, interesting time. You're absolutely right. Yeah, we're all learning. We are. Yeah. We're, we're learning the, uh, the, the limits of our skill sets, I think, is what's happening. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the running joke, of course, is I went to law school, so I have no actual skill set. <laughs> That's what I keep uh, trying to tell people. <laughs> uh, well, Dave and Rachel, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining. And uh, I think this was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.